Hello, and welcome to the Bethesda Podcast feed. It's here you can find all of our recorded services. And for more information, you can visit us at gobethesda.com. We hope you enjoy. So here we go. This is Big Little Books. And this is, Julie, you were right, part 49. We're in the book of Haggai. This is chapter 2, part 2. And chapter 3, part 1, if we get there. So let me say a prayer and we'll jump right in. Father, thank you so much for your faithfulness, for your goodness. Pray, God, that you would just help me to speak, help us to hear what the Word is saying to us, the truth that's in there. And we give you praise for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, this will be some review introduction, and we'll just automatically pick right back up somewhere in it. Verses 4 through 5, I'm going to read. So we're in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Yet now be strong. Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you, do not fear. Check this out. Be strong once, be strong twice, be strong three times, and work once, do not fear once. God told his people three times, be strong. Then he said, work, and then he said, do not fear. Here's what I get out of this. Tim, this is what Donovan gets out of this. It's three times harder to start the work than the work itself. I mean, once you've started, even the discouragement you face along the way is easier to overcome than the challenge of taking the first step. You've got To have launch power, which is different. Launch power. I know something about this from starting a church. It takes over 6 million pounds of thrust to launch the space shuttle. SpaceX's Starship. Biggest rocket ever. Will generate 17 million pounds of thrust. It takes that kind of thrust to launch, to get airborne, and to eventually get into orbit. Procrastination is so easy, isn't it? Doesn't it just come naturally? You students, right? Right? That's why you're, you know. I'm trying to think of the popping no-dos. How about that? No-dos. I hope you ain't popping nothing else, but popping some no-dos, trying to stay awake. Drinking a lot of caffeine, a lot of Red Bulls at the last minute. Because procrastination is so easy. Starting is the hardest part. But you'll never finish a journey that you don't start. A journey of a thousand miles starts with the first step. And it takes strength to take the first step. Because everything in the world is pushing back, working against you. And then once you exert the energy to start, you work. And when you're working, sometimes you get scared and discouraged. 
That's when you have to remember what God said. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So that helps you keep your fear in check. One commentator, Baldwin, said this. He said the problem was with the children of Israel here, a lack of dissatisfaction with things as they were and the consequent drive to initiate action. He goes on to say resignation killed faith. In other words, they were accustomed to having no temple completed, just the foundation and the altar, and they were okay to live like that. And there's truth in what Baldwin is saying, but initially, I think, upon further reflection, the problem is they didn't have the strength to start. It was a failure to launch. And... Uh, what the prophetic word is saying here is, you have a choice to make. You choose to be strong enough to start. You have a choice to make. You choose whether or not to focus on what God has said and choose to take the, the strength. Use the strength that you have to take the first step. And he's saying, uh, he's saying that to his people. And it sounds familiar because that's what the Lord told Joshua when they were going to take the promised land. If you'll remember, he said, be strong and courageous. Like emphasize that. you got to be strong to take this land. To cross that river, to take those first steps, you got to be strong. And so the answer to that was he said, so this book of the law will not depart from before you. From You're going to meditate in it day and night. It'll be in your mouth. You'll repeat it to yourself over and over. You're going to stay in the word. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. There's strength that comes from that. And then as you get into the journey and discouragement seems to set in, you get a little afraid of some giants or whatever, just get back in the word. Stay in the word. But you have to have the strength to launch, to start. And it still works that way today. Ephesians 6.10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And, and that in the Lord is a reference to covenant. You know that? We, we kind of throw that out there like uh, in the Lord means, you know, be strong in the Lord. Like I'm going to be strong. How am I strong in the Lord? Well, it's covenantial language in this covenant that I have. God's made, he's actually sworn oaths to me. He's given me promises, but he's sworn them in a covenantial form, sworn oaths. You know, there's a difference between a contract and a covenant. A contract doesn't have sworn oaths. But a covenant has sworn oaths. I swear by a higher power that, that I will do what I say I'm going to do. And God swore, couldn't swear by a higher power, so he swore by himself. He swears to do certain things. It's covenant. And so he says, Paul said it, be strong in the Lord, in the covenant that you have with God. It's an exchange of strengths because of weakness. That's what covenant is. To warring tribes. Uh, or two tribes. One's a warring tribe. One's a farming tribe. The warriors can't farm. And the farmers can't fight. So what do they do? They make a treaty. They make a covenant. And it's a, an exchange of strengths because of weaknesses. I'm good at farming. I'll give you my food if you'll fight for me. We're good at fighting, but we're terrible at farming. We'll fight for you if you'll give us your food. And so they, the two become one. See what I'm saying? An exchange of strengths because of weaknesses. And so when he says, be strong in the Lord, 
And in the power of his might, I'm giving you everything I have. I'm going to give you my, my body, present your body a living sacrifice. I'm going to have my mind renewed to your word and your ways. I'm going to give you what I have. And God says, I'll give you what I have. And so that totally fits with what we're looking at in Haggai because he goes on and says, I am with you according to the word that I, strange word, but it's the word we just used, covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. He's saying, I swore some things. As I was with you in the past, I'll be with you still. He hadn't left them. He was saying, you can be encouraged. One writer says this, undoubtedly, fear had gripped many of the returnees. You know, they had been in exile for so long. If you don't know where we are, you can go back and listen to the first parts of Haggai on our podcast. Check it out. Uh, but what he was saying is, this uh, Alden is the guy that's writing this. He said, undoubtedly, fear gripped many of the returnees. Fear that God had written an eternal Ichabod over Jerusalem. Ichabod means the glory has departed. And so they were afraid, like God's not with us. And he's encouraging them. Hey, I swore some covenants. I am with you. He said, my spirit remains among you. This is wonderful for them. This is amazing. And we have, we have a better covenant based on better promises. We don't have just the spirit with us. We have the spirit in us. Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? So in this new covenant, it's even stronger. It's even cooler. His presence, his help. And we can choose to believe what he has said in his word, his covenant, the word of his covenant, or not. But if we'll choose to believe it, that's where strength comes from. Are you with me? Verses 6 through 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will make, or I will shake, <laughs> I will make, I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill the temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. So let's take that apart. Once more, I will shake the heaven and the earth. This is the only part of Haggai that's quoted in the New Testament. Hebrews 12, 26. It, it says that God intends to shake the present world, the present world order in his coming day of judgment. So God is, is dealing with world history. History is his story. And there's a, as we've seen in prophecy in the past, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on this, but as we've seen in prophecy in the past, there's an immediate application. There's an intermediate application. And there's a long-range application. We see this over and over and over again in Scripture. So what is this idea of once more I will shake the heavens? Well, there's an immediate application. About a century or two after Haggai wrote this, uh, you've got the prophecy being fulfilled. Do you guys remember this fella? 
right? This was from the, our study in the book of Daniel. This is Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And it's my dream also to have this little fella, this statue. When I was a kid, my grandfather was infatuated with the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel. And he studied prophecy incessantly. And he had like charts and pictures of this guy right here. But this is from Daniel's dream. Daniel's image is often what it's called. And it's really not his dream. It's really Nebuchadnezzar's dream that Daniel interpreted. And it was the head of gold. It's the arms and chest of silver and so on and so forth. Well, what we're going to see is the Lord shaking up the nations and getting them just in the right place for his own plans and purposes. God sets up and God puts down. We think that it's our political system and our prowess and our great candidates and our, our systems of government and whatnot. And, and really, it's God puts up and God puts down and God the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, moving pieces on a chessboard to get his will done in this earth realm. And so about a century or two after Haggai wrote this, you've got the fulfillment of this prophecy in, a, in an immediate sense. In 540 B.C., the Ionian Greeks were and had been subject to the rule of the Persians under Cyrus the Great. These are characters in your own Bible. Then in 501 B.C., about 20 years after Haggai wrote the book of Haggai, the Greeks rebelled against Persia. About a decade after this resistance began, the Persians invaded. They're mad at the Greeks. And Darius the Mede, you know the story of the Medes and the Persians. We, that's, that's in your Bible as well. And so you had the Persians and then the Medes come in. And Darius the Mede is, is the king of Persia, you could say at the time, and he leads this huge army, but he's defeated at Marathon around 490 B.C. Right out here in, in Lecher or somewhere, Marathon Oil down here. That's, that's where they were defeated. And then Darius' successor, Xerxes, assembles this mass army of about 1.8 million men. Think about that. Massive. And this huge navy. But in 480 B.C., the Greeks defeated the Persian army, scattered their navy. About a year later, Xerxes reassembles the army and navy, but he's once again defeated. The Persian Empire begins to crumble, fall apart, and Alexander the Great crosses the Bosporus, defeats the Greeks at Granicus in 334, Isis in 332, and Arbala in 331. And, of course, he's setting up the Greek empire and then after his death here come the romans that's daniel's image right here taking place right before your very eyes that's what he said and he gave the names of the nations nebuchadnezzar that's you babylon the arms of the chest well we're going to see that that's the medes and the persians and then you're going to have the greeks and then the legs are going to be rome and so on and so forth and if you want to get really deep into that Go listen to the podcast from the book of Daniel, and it's just amazing. It's amazing. It's so relevant. It's so relevant to, to here and now. People say, you can't prove the Bible's true, and I get it, because you really can't. People's like, I've told you this before. Oh, help me. My mind's going crazy. Um, I got so many thoughts coming to my mind. I, I got to focus. Help me, Lord. 
So here's what happens. Uh, in the olden days, you know, I was taught you had to teach the Bible. I needed to be a witness. I needed to teach the Bible. And I always got discouraged when I would try to teach the Bible to somebody. They're like, I don't believe the Bible's the Bible. And I'm like, you don't believe the Bible's the Bible. You've got to believe the Bible to be saved. And they're like, I don't believe the Bible's the Bible. And I'm like, what am I going to do? They don't believe the Bible's the Bible. How is a Bible study going to help somebody that doesn't believe the Bible is the Bible? And so I was all discouraged until I realized the Bible's not written for, un- for believers. The Bible's written for unbelievers so they can become believers. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Now I'm really bold about it. I'm like, I don't care what you believe. If you'll listen to these stories long enough, faith's going to come. You're going to have a hard time not believing. Because it's a supernatural book. At the same time, though, you can run numbers and figures and facts. You can trace the prophetic part of Scripture, which is a huge percentage of the Scripture, and it's uncanny how accurate the Bible is down to the very day. Written on multiple continents by 40-plus authors, but you got one Holy Spirit superintending all of it. It's amazing. So you can't prove the Bible, but doggone it, you, you, you can have like, you know, uh, amazing facts, right? <laughs> this is amazing right here. And in my opinion, it, it, it is a proof that it does have an otherworldly origin, okay? It, it originates outside of time space as we understand it. So... You have all these nations rising and falling. God is shaking up the nations for his plans and purposes. We get all bothered here, even today. Let me bring this down to where we are. Like China starts flaring up over Taiwan. Oh, we lose our minds. China coming alive, man. We better watch out what we do with Taiwan. People are like, we ought to send troops. Well, not send troops. What are we going to do? we got to stand with Taiwan. Russia invades Ukraine. And uh, man, we, we're freaking out. Iran, and, and I get it. Listen, we, we need to be good stewards of what we have, and we need to be good citizens and all that. I get that. And, and, and there's evil in the world, and there's evil expressed in nations, all nations. I get it. But at the same time, we've got to understand this. Our, our allegiance is not of this world. Our allegiance is to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And one day the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ. And, and He shakes up and moves things according to His plans and purposes. And His will will come to pass on this earth. There's also an intermediate fulfillment to this idea of shaking the nations. Rome was in place. So you got Babylon. Medes and the Persians, you got Greece, and then Alexander dies, and his generals fight over it, and then you have Rome come on the scene, and you got to understand the intermediate fulfillment of I'll shake the nations, Rome was in place so that its emperor, Augustus, could issue a decree, and that very decree would get Joseph and Mary to a town called Bethlehem. For a census. And there in that town. A thousand years earlier. It had been prophesied. That Jesus would be born. The king of kings. And so you have just amazing. 
amazing stuff here. It would get them from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And some commentators point out that this word for the desire of nations can also be translated treasures. Uh, he, he points out the gold is mine, the silver is mine, and you got this idea, I'm going to have the, the treasures for the temple. Uh, they belong to me, and, and I'm going to get them. And uh, you could also look at the fact that the desire of nations, the, the Gentiles would fund the rebuilding of the temple. Well, I've kind of focused in on that too. Wouldn't it be great if the Gentiles like funded the building of our temple? The uncovenanted one? Wouldn't it be great if like, that's what Gentile really means is, uh, I don't know, I'm like, I'm just thinking, you know, people that don't go to this church are like, hey, I got a, I got a burden. I want to, I'm going I'm to give you some money. Well, that <clears throat> is a great idea to me, man. It was when I was thinking about it. They shall come to the desire of all nations. So I've already mentioned, you know, you've got some that see that as treasure. A lot of ancient commentators see this as a prophecy of the Messiah coming to the temple uh, that would be rebuilt in the days of Haggai and Ezra, Nehemiah. This understanding started with ancient rabbis and continued among Christians. And it fits with the, the, the temple being filled with glory we know the solomon's temple was filled with glory and this this one would be too and they shall come to the desire of all nations uh, we know that gentiles will bring tribute to the lord in the millennial uh, temple uh, there's a third temple there's a millennial temple that's a, a whole no other bible study but here here's here's something i wanted to throw out they shall come to the desire of, of all nations. Jesus is really the desire of all nations. In the Greek, on the Greek side of the Bible, nations is ethnos. It's ethnicities. It's humanity. You know, the book of Revelation, I saw, you know, from every tribe, nation, kindred, tongue, ethnicities. All ethnicities evolved, not the best word for it, but came from uh, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. All the diversity in the world came from Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And the desire of all nations really is Jesus Christ, even if the nations don't understand that. That's really what we're all hungry for. Spurgeon said this, speaking of Jesus, He is the one, the true reformer, the true rectifier of all wrong. And in this respect, the desire of all nations. Oh, if the world could gather up all her right desire, if she could condense in one cry all her wild wishes, if all true lovers of mankind could condense their theories and extract the true wine of wisdom from them, it would just come to this. We want an incarnate God, and you have got the incarnate God. Oh, nations. But ye know it not. Ye in the dark are groping after him and know not that he is there. Isn't that great? Knowing that Jesus is the desire of all nations also encourages us in evangelism. Again, Spurgeon says this, Brethren, I may add, Christ is certainly the desire of all nations in this respect. That, do, that we desire him for all nations. Oh, that the world were 
encompassed, encompassed in his gospel. Would God, the sacred fire, would run along the ground that the little handful of corn on the top of the mountain would soon make its fruit to shake like Lebanon? Oh, when will it come? When will it come that all nations shall know him? Let us pray for it. Let us labor for it. So he said, the silver is mine and uh, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. They didn't need to be discouraged if they didn't have money for the building project. They, they just had to trust the Lord who really owned every resource. And then they were to give as well. When we really trust God, uh, we give generously. David Guzik relates this story. It's a great story of Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to the interior regions of China in the second half of the 19th century. Uh, amazing stuff if you've ever read after him. As a young man, he preached in boarding houses in the poor slums of London. A poor man asked Hudson Taylor to come back to his room and pray for his wife who suffered complications from childbirth and was near death. The man had no money at all and couldn't afford to pay a priest to come and perform the last rites. Taylor went to the man's room and found the heartbreaking situation. Several children, the afflicted mother, and a three-day-old baby living in absolute filth and squalor with absolutely no food and no money. Taylor knew that he had something like a $20 coin in his pocket that would meet their needs, but it was all the money that he had in the world. He began to speak to the family about the Lord, and God spoke to his own heart and said, You hypocrite, telling these unconverted people about a kind and loving Father in heaven and not prepared yourself to trust him with your 20 bucks? Taylor wished that he had $10, two $10 pieces instead of one $20 piece. He would gladly have given them one, but all he had was that one coin. He was taken aback, but decided to lead the family in the Lord's Prayer. As soon as he said the words, Our Father, the Lord convicted him of his hypocrisy again. He struggled through the prayer under tremendous conviction and then gave the $20 piece to the Father. That provision saved the life of the mother and rescued the family. The lesson is plain. Knowing God provides should make us more generous Instead of less generous. Isn't that great? And then he goes on and says, The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former. The glory of this temple. And, you know, that's, hey, hello. Exceeding expectations. Thank you, Thomas. 23, that's our theme for the year. Thomas preached a message entitled Exceeding Expectations. It became the theme. I'm just waiting to see which preacher amongst us is going to preach next year's theme. <laughs> yeah. So the glory of this temple was, in fact, greater than this temple. So let me give you some stuff on this. Pretty cool. First, you know, they had built the foundation and they had built the, uh, the altar. And, and when they dedicated Zerubbabel, this, the second temple is called Zerubbabel's temple. Because, you know, the first temple is destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar wiped it out, hauled them off to Babylon. But then they came back, they started a building project, they've been on pause for 18 years, that's what Haggai's all about. And they had built the foundation, they had built the, the altar, 
And, and that took a few years, and then they paused about 14 years of doing nothing. And Haggai comes up with the word of the Lord. And so th- they're going to finish this temple, and, and it's pretty cool. It's, it's, it's nice, but it's not as glorious as Solomon's temple. And so at the dedication, we see this in Ezra. The, the old men that remembered Solomon's temple, they wept. The young men who never saw Solomon's temple, they rejoiced. They were screaming and hollering and shouting the victory. But the prophecy was the glory of the latter house will be greater than that of the former house. And so, if you really dissect it and look at it, Herod, this Edomite, all right, that's like a vassal king for Rome, uh, Herod takes the temple apart, dismantles it. He takes it down to the foundation and, and renovates the thing. And adds on and rebuilds. And so Herod's temple. Now to us, Herod's temple would be the third temple. Because he demolished, really, the second temple down to the foundation. Are you with me? So this this one we're reading about, they're going to finish it. But then Herod's going to come along years later. And he's going to wipe it out. He's going to tear it down, raise it, R-A-Z-E. And then he's going to rebuild on that foundation, a temple uh, that's much bigger, huge, massive thing. Uh, the outer court, you could get 100,000 people just in the outer court. It's massive. Uh, newer translations call it the temple complex. It's like the Mall of Louisiana, right? It's like the Amazon center over there at Cortana, which is the biggest building I have ever seen in my life. Massive. That was Herod's temple, the second temple. It's not the third, it's the second. It's massive. couple things about that. This is fascinating to me. Uh, if you strip, which Herod did, you strip everything away But the foundation that's laid is laid right. It's correct. If that foundation is right, and no other foundation that can be laid will be laid. The Bible said, speaking of Jesus Christ and and the truth around him, if you strip everything else away but the foundation is still intact and it's right, then in God's eyes, that's not a third temple that Herod built, it's still the second temple because the foundation was right. Now, I don't know if you get excited about this. It's Wednesday night. This is when I get excited about things and everybody else doesn't, but that's all right. Here's the deal. If you get the foundation right, everything else is just window dressing. It's just lanyard. The fa- if the foundation is right, let me just say this. If you get doctrine right, if you get word right, if you get truth right, Jesus said it. He said, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What rock? Jesus said, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the rock, the identity of Of who Jesus is. That's the foundation that's been laid. That you can't lay another foundation. If you'll get that right. 
I don't care what your style of music is. I don't care what your building looks like. I don't care if you've got high church, low church, whatever it is. If you get the foundation right, brothers and sisters, upon this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You get that foundation right. It blew my mind. Herod tears it all down. It's not a third temple. It's still a second temple. Because the foundation was right. Foundation was right. And it's not only getting the identity of who Christ is, but Jesus looked at Peter and said, I'll tell you who you are. You're Peter, and, a, and you're, the, you're a piece of the rock. It was, it was not just Peter getting it right about who Jesus was, but then learning who he was. So it's, it's who Jesus is and then who we are in Christ. You get that right, ain't nothing can stop you. Well, amen. That'll preach. Too bad I'm not preaching. Right. <laughs> the latter glory. Here's something else too. The Hebrew, the Hebrew is actually this. Because I I've said this, I mean, I've preached it many years, and and it's it's accurate, but there's a an even better way to say it. So the glory, the glory of the latter house will be greater than that of the former house. It's technically the latter glory of this house. The latter glory of this house. So if it's tabernacle, if it's first temple, if it's second temple, if it's Herod like scratches it out, leaves the foundation, builds another one, if it's Herod's temple, it, if it's the church, if you get the foundation right, it's considered the house of God all the way through. And the glory, the latter glory of the house. I mean, we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. We've got the prophets. We've got the Old Testament. We, Jesus is the word made flesh. Like the house of God has always been a people called by his name, called out from among them to be separate. It's this covenanted group of people and the latter glory of the house, the household of faith. Are you with me? The household of faith. Household of faith is not a church down here on airline, pastored by Scott Bledsoe. That's not the household of faith. That's the name of their church. The household of faith is the church throughout all of time and space, starting from the very beginning when Adam built an altar and called on the name of the Lord and said, you got to save us. And then uh, Abel built an altar and killed an animal and called on the name of the Lord and said, you got to save us. And then Seth did the same thing. And then Noah did the same thing. And on and on and on. Abraham was called out from his people and built altars. And on and on until you get to us today, it's the household of faith. And the latter, the latter glory of this house is going to be greater. I, my, let me tell you what I think. Once more, I'll shake the, the, the nations. Let me tell you what I think God's going to do. This is, my, this is Donovan's take on this, Tim, right here. I believe that God is going to have a church in these last days that is full of power like never before. Uh, and uh, uh, an outpouring of this. He said, in the last days, says God, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. The latter glory of the household of faith 
is going to be greater than that of the former. The former and the latter rain together. You're going to have an outpour. In my opinion, I, I believe that's what Scripture is saying. God's going to do something very powerful in our day. And I don't want to be like that old guy. And I want you to stand with me right now. I don't want to be like that old, that old guy that there had been a famine. And the prophetic word came to Elijah. And he said, this time tomorrow. Going to be a, enough to eat, an abundance. Everything's going to change. And old, that old guy said, I don't believe it. Ain't going to happen. And he said, You know what? You're going to see it, but you're not going to partake of it. I don't want to be like that guy. Whatever God's got in mind, I want to be right up in the middle of it. I'm going to, if I'm going to err, err. <laughs> I'm going to err, err, on the side of, I'm trusting you, God, to do a work in these last days. Because you love people. You love the nations. And let these old gods rise up that were around in previous houses, Baal and Ashtoreth. Let them remanifest and morph and have different names entertainment, Hollywood, flesh, legislation. Let America lose its way. Let the whole world lose its way. Let every man be a liar. But God is true. And I want to be standing with God. And I believe that God, in His mercy, is going to give us a revival. I do. Because John the Revelator said, I saw. He saw nations represented that didn't even exist yet. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue. It's only 70 people groups in the Bible, but they morph, they intertwine. And, and so now we have hundred, you know, almost 200 recognized nations in the world. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every kindred. I believe that's in this day too. Ukrainians, Kenyans. Bulgarians, Cajuns, <laughs> every tribe, every nation, every tongue. That's a big picture, little picture. Invite somebody to church. Tell somebody about Jesus. Pray for somebody. Trust them. The first step is the hardest one. But if you, if you get the strength to launch. What, what can God do? If you close your eyes with me right now, Father, I thank you so much for your word, for the strength that comes from your word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. Father, we're, we can only do those things that you strengthen us to do, really. I mean, it's it's not of ourselves. It's It's the gift of God. And Lord, I just pray that you would strengthen this church. Some are facing situations right now, God, where they, they need to take a step, but the step is a tough step. God, I hear you saying to Haggai and saying to us like you did in the book of Haggai, be strong, be strong, be strong. Work, 
then don't be afraid. Be strong enough to take the first step. Be strong enough to take that chance. Be strong enough to take that risk. Be strong enough to step out on that ledge. Be strong enough. And then get to work, man. Roll up your sleeves. Do what God's called you to do. When you're afraid, don't be afraid. Recommit yourself in Jesus. Thank you for joining us. And for more information, you can visit us at GoBethesda.com. You can also visit us in person at 15050 Daigle Road, Prairieville, Louisiana. Services are at 10 a.m. Sunday and 7 p.m. on Wednesday.